tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we're speaking with Dr. Nicholas Dodman. Dr. Dodman is one of the world's most noted and celebrated veterinary behaviorists. Dr. Dodman attended Glasgow University Veterinary School in Scotland, where he received a BVMS, which is a DVM equivalent. He's board certified by the American College of Veterinary Anesthesiologists and the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. Dr. Dodman founded the Animal Behavior Clinic at Tufts University School of Veterinary Medicine in 1986. Upon retirement in 2016, Dr. Dodman was recognized as Professor Emeritus at Tufts University. Additionally, Dr. Dodman has written five acclaimed best-selling books that have received a tremendous amount of national press. Dr. Dodman co-founded the Center for Canine Behavior Studies alongside business and marketing expert Chris Janelli. By continuously diving deep into the cause and effect of dog behavior, the Center for Canine Behavior Studies aims to reduce the rate of owner surrender in euthanasia by making humane, research-based solutions to canine behavior problems more available to the general public. Dr. Dobman, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you for inviting me. So what an incredible uh, bio you have there. You have done so much over the years, and I certainly remember your writings from the early days when I started back in 1994 with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. Before we dive in deep to all the work that you've done over the past years, you know, I guess I'll call you a dog person, but yet you definitely have respect and have put a lot of time and effort and research into cat issues. So how did you become passionate about cats? Actually, unbeknownst to most people, um, I had cats growing up with my parents, nice white cat called Lulu came to a sad end in London, encountered a London bus, and that was not so good. And then as a university student, I had cats in my dorm. And then when I came to, well, in Scotland, and then when I came to the United States, I had cats. And I've always had like two cats, and they've always been rescues. And, And don't tell anybody, but I never had a dog. So when I was in the clinic, and people would come up and say, You know, as a cat, I don't know if you know about cat behavior. And I would say to them, actually, secretly, I'm a cat person. But I I like dogs very much. That sort of changed a bit when I got a dog. And and I've got a dog and a cat, a rescue cat. They got on great. And so I think I've got even balance now. And yeah, I like uh, dogs a lot now, especially I've got to understand them more as people because before they were patients. And I did really like some of the ones that came in to see me. But when I saw a cat come in, I was always like, yes. So dogs and cats now. Excellent. You know, over the years, I'm sure you've seen a lot of conversation changing with regards to behavioral issues with cats and dogs. Have you seen the focus change from back in the 80s to now? I mean, the conversation about behavioral issues in animals, is it much more in the forefront than it was back in the 80s, early 90s? Yeah, I think so. You know, when I was growing up and in my early cat owning days, cats were indoor outdoor creatures. You know, they were allowed to roam outside. And I thought that was a very good way to be because they can live a natural life and they can climb trees and they can explore around. They're not just cooped up in a house. And then one of my cats, um, my 
daughter, who's now all grown up, married with two grandchildren for me, her cat, when she was three, was run over on the road outside my house. And she looked at me, a three-year-old, and says, Daddy, can you mend him? Well, I couldn't. So we got another cat eventually after a mourning period. And that cat was shaken to death by a big stand-up poodle in the field. That was my son's cat, nominally. And that was shaken to death in front of his eyes and sent him bursting into tears. And then after another suitable gap, we got a tortoiseshell cat called Bianca. And that one just disappeared, being outside, couldn't find it for days. And then I was walking by my back deck and I heard, I looked under the deck and there was Bianca. And she looked quite normal until I took her out. And the front end of the cat was normal. And the back end was soaked in urine and covered in maggots, little tiny, you know, one millimeter long maggots. And I had to put it to sleep because she had a broken spine. And it was just dreadful. And I was reading Conrad Lorenz's book, Man Who Meets Dog, which has some information about cats in there. And he's talking about his own cats. He said, I love cats. And the beauty of a cat is it goes outside and lives like a wild creature, but chooses to come back in and spend time with you at night. And then he adds, sadly, most of my cats have lived a very short life and came to a sticky, wicked end. So I gradually changed my mind and joined what is now a growing movement of people who keep their cat indoors. There's an unreferenceable piece of work that says that the life of an indoor-outdoor cat is, on average, four years. Now, you'll find people who say, I've got one who's 20 and has been indoor-outdoor his life, and some who've got a six-month-old has already been killed. So the average is four years, but for an indoor-only cat, it's more like 14 years average. You know, my last two that passed away were 19 and 21 but the thing is, if you're going to keep a cat indoors, which is great for longevity, you have to be prepared to deal with its natural penchants and behaviors. Um, like, for example, cats need a three-dimensional environment. So you need not to punish it for getting up on counters because that's what they need to do. They need to go up to walk, rest, patrol, whatever. And my friend Jackson Galaxy from um, uh, the, the dog, my cat from hell, I was watching one of his programs and this cat had all kinds of problems. It was in a women's massage parlor and it kept jumping on the massage. So he came in. The solution was perfect. He built a little walking frame up to the, um, you know, the, the ceiling and had boards put around. So now the cat could walk up and walk around, solve the immediate problem. But that's the way to go. Really, is to, if you have an indoor cat, which is the way they're going to live longer and be healthier, then you need to provide for them. For all of their biological functions, just, you know, look at what cats normally do. You know, they chase things, they climb things, you know, they, they groom themselves. Just make sure all those needs are satisfied. And now I suppose it's not as good a quality as outdoor life, but it is healthier and longer. So, you know, with that being said, I think we've had in the past this thought that, oh, well, I'm adopting a cat because it's less work than a dog. And there's this, this thought but what you're saying now, you know, if we're making the commitment for a cat to be an indoor-only cat, there are certain enrichments, activities, things we need to think about other than just scooping the litter box and putting the food out that we need to take into consideration for that cat's well-being. Absolutely. So, you know, most people, for example, don't think cats need to be exercised, but I think they need a minimum of 30 minutes of interactive exercise, you know, whether it's chasing a laser beam or batting around a ping pong ball or placing something around on a string, you know, cheap toys, a piece of string and the bottle top, you know, the, the thing you peel off a milk bottle and you put it on and they drag it around and they jump and they chase. 
they need to have this sort of physical and mental workout. You know, sometimes you can use, you know, food puzzles, not for all meals, but just occasionally to interest them, you know, stick a piece of food inside something that it will come out of and they can bat that around and then get a reward. And also training. People think cats can't be trained, but this is something, sort of a mental connection between you and the cat. I remember talking to or he- hearing from my friend, the great Karen Pryor of Clicker Training fame and the wonderful videos she's got on her site about training cats. Yes, you can train cats. Um, and Clicker Training was great. So I taught my older cat, black cat called Cinder. I taught her to sit and to beg in a very short period of time with a clicker and a food tree. And years later, she would remember how to do that. And so training is something which is enhancing for the relationship. It's interesting for the cat. And according to Karen Pryor, she had a graduate student. Um, I won't go into details because I don't have time now, but I could. Who trained her cat to, uh, her graduate student trained his cat to jump up on a chair and press a light switch and turn the light on with the word press it. And so at nighttime, you could say press it. The cat jump on the chair, press the light off. And then you heard in the dark, click at a food tree. And in the morning, say, press it and, or touch it, I think it was. And, and the same thing, you would turn the light on, click, food tree. But the, what the graduate student said as an aside is, you know, while the experiment worked well, I found that the clicker training of my cat really improved our relationship, that we looked on each other with it in a totally different light. Like I saw this cat as a thinking, intelligent creature who now looked at me as someone who could, you know, activate this process of interaction. And our relationship changed dramatically for the better, as opposed to what you said, which is just scoop the litter box and put food down. Yeah, they need training. They need, uh, it's helpful, right? And they need some exercise and they need an environment that's appropriate for a cat. So talking about clicker training, and this has been something that's really always fascinated me because, you know, many cases we have a lot of folks who manage community cat colonies, feral cat colonies, and some of them are barn cat situations. And we were just talking about the dangers of life being an outdoor cat. And one of our recommendations sometimes with regards to barn cats, or if you've got greenhouse cats, working cats, you know, is trying to get them into a safe environment at night. And so we say, you know, develop a whistle, feed them wet food at night. Do you think we could utilize some of the aspects of clicker training to try and train that group to come in into a safe space at night? Yeah, I think you can. I mean, you know, behavior is really, um, there are things that repel and there are things that attract. And all you've got to do is make the environment that you want the cat to be in as attractive as possible. Um, I don't know, you could make outside less interesting, but you can make inside really interesting by, you know, changing feeding schedules, use of treats, just being a good person, working with the cat, having a relationship. You know, there's some cats, and one of my two cats uh, rescues, the, the two, that, the younger one who died at 19, that cat wouldn't go out. So I'd open the slide door and it would it would go to the edge and look backwards and forwards and then go like, no. Nah. <laughs> so it was sort of trained to live indoors and everything it needed was indoors. Actually, the book I wrote, The Cat Who Cried For Help, is about a cat who was down a corridor, you know, like a, this woman was going to work and she looked down this passageway and there was this cat sitting and she thought, hmm, if that cat's still there tomorrow, I'm going to rescue it. I think two or three days later, she took a carrier down there, grabbed this entire male cat, had it vaccinated and neutered, right? And then she brought it into her apartment, thought she'd done a good turn. But 
she didn't like the way it scratched her furniture. So then she had it declawed. And then she didn't like the way that it played at night because her neighbors downstairs were complaining about toys rolling around on their ceiling above. So she wanted me to drug it with an anti-anxiety drug so it would sleep at night. And eventually she decided, because it would caterwaul at night because it was so used to nighttime, you know, they're not, not nocturnal but crepuscular living. And so she, she said, I, I'd like to just devocalize it, you know, cut its vocal cords. And I said, no, not going to do it. But my department chairman at the day is a surgeon. And without me knowing, he just said, oh, by the way, that cat that was a patient of yours, I devocalized it. So the point of the story was the cat was outside living what you could arguably call a, a short life and a happy one, a merry one, and ended up coming indoors, getting one surgery for castration, one surgery for dechloring, one surgery for the larynx, and then she still wanted the medication too. So, I mean, the cat cried for help inside the house because it wanted to get out. Right. And that's some of the behavior of what we're seeing you know, we see this in people. People do things to try and convey messages and our cats will do that too. And we need to be able to listen. And you, you did talk about drugs there. And I wanted to touch upon prescribing drugs for potentially behavioral issues as a, as a veterinarian, as an expert in this field. You know, when do you work with the non-drug tools that you have and where do you make that decision to cross the line to do some pharmaceutical prescriptions? Well, if we just talk about one so reasonably uh, common condition is urine marking, which is different from house soiling. House soiling is just basically a litter box problem, which can be, people would come in and say, oh, my cat's urinating outside the litter box. I'd like you to put him on drugs. That's why I came to see you. And I go like, I don't need to, you know, I can fix this. And they go like, no, really, really? And I said, just trust me, give me a week. And sure enough, fix it. You're like, wow, I never knew. But then when you get urine marking, which is often, in strategic locations, as opposed to just being on a flat surface, the floor, you know, on a rug or something, it might be on your shoes, it might be on a laundry basket, it might be, I mean, all kinds of interesting places that I always enjoyed hearing about. And sometimes on vertical surfaces or around windows and stuff, that can be fixed with um, Prozac. And the success rate is enormous. There was a paper written by another colleague of mine, Dr. Benjamin Hart, who headed up the behavior program at UC Davis. And he said that in the paper he published, something like 90 or 95% of cats had this annoying behavior, stinky behavior, uh, completely shut down. And after a month or so, they took them off the medicine and a lot of them stayed stopped. And, and if they were on it for longer, like two or three months, maybe they would even more would stay stopped. Of course, there's a behavioral component to that too, is you have to try and figure out why the cat's marking because it's an anxious behavior. And sometimes you can't do anything about that. Like it could be new baby, right? You could get rid right. of the baby. Right. But or you could put the cat, you know, so they can handle the situation it's in. When I first started behavior, a behaviorist who was working in Massachusetts at the time said to me, you know, in behavior, you have to get used to failures. And she mentioned urine marking, she said, you know, it's almost impossible to treat. You know, you could try Valium. Uh, and it works in some cases, but if you take them off it, they immediately go back to doing it, sometimes worse than before. So get used to losing. No, not used to losing. I um, didn't want to do that. But then we had a, got a patent, actually, and um, nearly had a product in the, the anti-anxiety drug Buspirone, which is very safe. But then I'm afraid that that was beaten by Prozac with even better results. 
So now it is a completely fixable problem. And people would come to me as the last resort nation and say, you know, if you can't fix this, we, we, we've tried, we've tried, we, we can't carry on. I said, fear not, let's try this. And if it doesn't work within a couple of weeks, you know, I'll be a Dutchman. Well, and it and did work. Yeah, it sounds like it But there are other too. problems too, like some of the problems like psychogenic alopecia, where they pull their fur out. Again, that's an anxious problem. And if you can address the anxiety, like one case in the book was a veterinarian called Dr. Fleischmann, and he adopted a cat from his clinic for the kind man that he was. And his other cat started to pull its fur out. He said, it's not an option for me to get rid of the fur the cat I just brought home. And he says, we didn't quite have the right tools, but that's a condition oftentimes that can also respond to the antidepressants. I don't know about the an- an- anxiolytics, you know, the buspirones of the world, but um, certainly it responds because it's an OCD. It's like hair pulling in people. Yep. And there are other behaviors like this, um, you know, wool sucking pica in uh, Siamese and Oriental breeds. And that also, I mean, when, you, when I see that, it's genetic and it's, it's driven and sometimes it's very dangerous. Many of them get into intestinal obstruction and they can destroy clothes really making you know you, you get something fixed for a thousand dollars and they come in they chew it up again uh, mainly woolen substrates but um, other things too paper and sometimes wires and stuff it's all dangerous that can be treated with a, an antidepressant like Prozac or Paxil or Zoloft and some of the fears and phobias cats tend not to get the same array of fears and phobias as dogs I mean very rarely do you find a cat with thunderstorm phobia whereas that condition is 10 a penny in dogs and you do get separation anxiety in cats, but it's oftentimes very subtle. So you don't know your cat has it because cats don't bark and disturb the neighbors and they don't destroy furniture and break down doors. And, you know, but they might just have a urine marking problem right. when the owner's away only. Yeah, 75% of what you've said I've experienced <laughs> mm-hmm. in my household with toddlers. You know, one of my cats that she lived to be 20, but when, when my daughter was a toddler, her whole stomach was bald. What I did to try and resolve the problem was I instituted separation as of 7 p.m. every night. And so I had everybody separated and I had dedicated one-on-one time with my cats and the kids, but the cats and the kids were kept separate. Yeah. And, and that seemed to provide enough between that 7 p.m. to 7 in the morning. It gave the mm-hmm. cats enough time to feel that they were in enough of a safe space Mm-hmm. that they didn't, it seemed to help resolve the issue. So I guess for me, I was pretty lucky. I had a situation where, you know, my cat scratched my kid in the face and all that stuff. And I, so I decided, you know, okay, everybody needs some quiet time, including mom. And mm-hmm. so it, it seemed to resolve itself. But, you know, certainly I've had cats spray on my heating ducts, you know, in my house. And heating you know, registers, very common. Registers, yeah. And um, there's a plume of odors coming up from there, from elsewhere. It's got to be marked. You've got to mark it, check it. Exactly, exactly. And then obviously balancing the family of the cat balance in the family. I always had a multi cat household. And you know, if one passed away, or and I had foster cats, too. So there were new cats coming in and and cats going out. So it was always a joy trying to figure out what my balance was, you know, this week to the next week and, and that kind of thing. Give your feline friend protein packed meals, they'll crave with smalls. Smalls is fresh, human-grade food for cats, delivered right to your doorstep so you too can embrace your inner house cat. All cats are obligate carnivores. They need fresh, protein-packed meals. Conventional cat food is made with profits in mind, 
using low-quality, cheap meat byproducts, grains, and starches coated in artificial flavors. Smalls, on the other paw, is made with cats in mind. Smalls develops complete and balanced recipes for all life stages with leading cat nutritionists. Starting with human-grade ingredients like you or I would find at the market, Smalls recipes are gently cooked to lock in protein, vitamins, minerals, and moisture. No room for fillers, no need for flavoring. Better quality ingredients mean a better, healthier life for your cat. Since switching to Smalls, cats have experienced improved digestion and a less smelly litter box, softer and shinier coats, plus better breath. Try Smalls today for your cats in your household. Hooch loved it. Use offer code COMMUNITYCATS at checkout for a total of 30% off your first order at Smalls.com. Are you ready to be part of the solution for feral and stray cats in your neighborhood? If so, then make sure to sign up for our next Neighborhood Cats TNR Certification Workshop. A new workshop is held online each month, generally on the first Saturday of the month, but please check our website for exact dates. For just $10, expert instructors will teach you best practices for trap, neuter, and return. TNR. Learn what TNR is and why it works. We'll cover getting along with neighbors, preparations for trapping, trapping itself, including entire colonies at once, feeding, providing winter shelter, and more. Take advantage of the interactive format, extensive handouts, and video footage of actual projects. Attendees will receive a certificate of attendance and gain access to an ongoing Facebook group for networking with other TNR activists. The two-and-a-half-hour workshop is led by Susan Richmond, the Executive Director of Neighborhood Cats, and Brian Cordes, Neighborhood Cats National Programs Director. To find out the date of the next workshop and sign up, just visit communitycatspodcast.com. As we emerge from the global pandemic of COVID, fostering is emerging as the new normal in the animal welfare industry. But shelter management software doesn't provide the tools or the workflows for communicating with fosters at scale. So many organizations struggle to maintain hundreds of animals in foster homes. If only there was a system that was custom built specifically to solve this problem. Introducing Foster Space, powered by our friends at Dubert. Foster Space was custom built to allow you to manage hundreds of foster relationships and to communicate with them via text, email, and even Facebook Messenger. Your fosters have a portal where they can upload videos and photos and updates on their animals, and organizations can schedule fosters for meet and greets, adoption days, or anything else they need. There's so much more to check out. Sign up for free at www.dubert.com and go to the Foster Space tab to get started. A little bit about the Center for Canine Behavior Studies and what's the sort of work that you do there? We do um, surveys and they're pretty serious surveys. Like one of them, we looked at with dogs the interaction of owners and dogs to see if the owner's personality made any difference to the, the dog's behavior, and it did. But as you might expect, it's not a, an all or nothing thing because it's being driven by genetics, it's being driven by environment, uh, you know, other uh, lifestyle things going on. But sure, the owner's personality made a, about a 15% on average difference to how their dog reacted. And we did a study on the demographics of, um, of behavior, and we're talking about thousands of surveys and have to use a special computer at Vanderbilt University to store the massive amount of information we collect for questionnaires that go up to 100 questions times a thousand cats and then we've got an IT guy who works with us who processes it all and you know, I'm proud to say that one won the welfare award of the year um, for the Journal of Veterinary Behavior and um, my assistant Ian Dinwoody who's the rude to say techie 
uh, statistical guy, smart logistics and all that kind of stuff. He um, won the Young Investigator of the Year Award. So and we've just done one on canine aggression, which says, you know, if you have an aggressive dog, um, who, do you, who did you go to see? What did they tell you to do? How did it work out for you? Were medications helpful? And so on. So that's been published also. I think it's free at the minute. I think you can go online to um, Journal of Veterinary Behavior and download that. I'm not sure. But cats, we've got Cats Corner in there too. So we're trying to develop that, you know, sort of funding dependent as to how much we can develop it. But I'd like to do a demographic study of um, cat behavior. People have done them before, but it's usually a, a clinic and they're doing numbers of animals that came in to see them. And if you just ask the members of our group who have cat owners too, does your cat show any of these behaviors? Then we have a control group, which is cats who don't have any behaviors and an affected group who have this, that, and the other. And we can look at it. So we'd, we'd like to do that. And um, we've got other studies going on, fears and anxieties. We do sort of mini studies too on um, light chasing and border collies, um, for example, CBD, you know, how helpful that is, what people use, did it work for them? So, yeah, it's just basically information. You know, there's a thing on TV. Sometimes you see some a celebrity comes on and says, you know, if you, you should feed your children more vegetables or something. And then the star flashes across the screen and it says, the more you know. So what we're in the business is the more you know, the better it is. And the better you can deal with issues that arrive that lead to reduced surrender. So we're not trying to adopt them out of the places. I mean, we're, we love people who do that, like ASPCA. But we're trying to stop them from going there, which is preventive behavioral treatment by educating owners about what actually to expect and what they can do about it. And yes, cats have aggression too. We didn't mention that, but you know, territorial aggression between cats is pretty common. And there are behavioral treatments and there are pharmaceutical treatments that sometimes are needed to complement the behavioral treatment. But we're interested in all that. I did post a number of articles that I had as notes at Tufts on cat behavior for my lecture to the students on cat behavior. I posted them up there on the Center for Cat and Behavior Studies in Cat's Corner. So you could read all about different types of cat aggression, fears and anxieties, cat compulsive behavior, house smiling, urine marking, and all the things that cats do. That's great. And then you mentioned earlier in our conversation about a book you wrote several years ago, The Cat Who Cried for Help. Can you just share a little bit with our listeners, a little bit of a summary about the book and where would they find that? Well, the summary is basically, it was a... Um, modeled after my dog book, which is the dog who loved too much. And what I did was I took for that dog book and then for the cat book about the 14 most common issues that people will experience. And I, I described it around a personal story. So, you know, I would say something like I was sitting in the consulting room one day and along came a woman with a cat under her arm in a carrier. And she said, I just can't go on. Is your marking around the house? And I said this, and she said that. So they're little sort of stories and vignettes, but they cover the major behavior problems. And in cats, of course, you know, there's this, some cats are very active at night. Uh, some cats can get depressed on the loss of a companion, as dogs can too. So depression, compulsive disorders, it's all in there. But in storybook fashion. So that was a, a bestseller like the dog book. And... Um, Bantam Doubleday Dell gave me a leather-bound copy of each book, which is 
that means you've been very special because that's the way books were published in the past with a leather-bound copy. Dr. Dotman, if uh, folks are interested in finding out more about the Center for Canine Behavior Studies, how would they do that? There's a couple of ways of doing it. You could just do drdotman.org. That's D-R-D-O-D-M-A-N. No period after the first D-R. So drdotman.org. I believe it works on drdotman.com also. We've got another link that takes you to the same place, which is called Dog Studies. Dot org with no space, just run those two words, dog studies together, dot org. Or you can do the long version, which is center for canine behavior studies dot org. Excellent. Is there anything head for else? Cats Corner. Yes. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think we pretty much covered everything. I think if anybody wanted to see any of the publications that I had, there's a website called Google Scholar. Dot com, just all one word. Actually, if you went onto Google and then just put in scholar, mm-hmm. it comes up as the first hit. And then you put in my name, Dodman, D-O-D-M-A-N, and then you put in the word cat. I think you'll find a list of things that are kind of interesting and scientific, including a nice study we did looking at um, wool sucking in, uh, you know, wool, wool sucking pica in oriental breeds of cat, like Siamese and Burman mainly but it affects all of them. So it was just when it starts, what they do, what can be done kind of thing. So, uh, and a few other things too. I think that impacts several bottle-fed kittens too, the wool sucking and the chewing. Absolutely. In that paper, what we found out was that cats who were weaned after 12 weeks rarely had it. And cats that were weaned before, you know, I know that in cats, they, they normally nurse for seven weeks. And they keep trying after that. And their mother comes back and rebuffs them and says, no, go and fend for yourself. But either way, I think, um, you know, nutritive suckling, which is getting bits of milk, is probably something they do for 12 weeks. But then after that, they get um, comfort suckling, too. So when they're a bit upset, they run back to mummy's boob and nurse on that. Uh, But three months seems to be the magical thing. So in a way, you could argue that if you have a Siamese cat or a Burman or some such, that you probably shouldn't, you know, as a breeder, you shouldn't really uh, adopt them out at seven weeks. It's too early, and that really increases, tilts the whole table. And at four weeks, you've got to help you. If you get a, a litter of four weeks and, and they're, they're bottle-fed, you know, sure, they're going to have a very high chance of developing that condition, the, the, the pica, really, is well. a depraved appetite, eating all kinds of weird stuff. What a great way to end the, the conversation, but yeah. it is certainly challenging. I know it's an issue that a lot of the kitten foster organizations deal with that question a lot. And the folks that adopt the bottle fed kittens sometimes aren't necessarily aware that that could potentially happen. And so I think that's part of that information that we want to be able to share and send on to folks. So because oftentimes we have, you know, kittens that, mom's been hit by a car or mom's so feral, she doesn't want to even deal with the kittens or whatever. So there's just a lot of different scenarios. And the more that we can learn about all different kinds of behavior issues, you know, the better off that we, that we can be. Dr. Dobman, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the show. And I hope we'll have you on again in the future. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun. We'll do it again. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. 
You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Did you attend our recent online feline leukemia day? We hope you learned some new and surprising information from the presentations that will help you save more cats. Events like Feline Leukemia Day would not be possible without the generous sponsorships of the following organizations. The Tompkins Foundation for Feline Leukemia Advocacy, Humane Network, and Vets Pets. Would you like to support content that helps save feline lives? Please visit communitycatspodcast.com and click on Support CCP to learn more about sponsorship opportunities.